And so we want to turn our hearts to God's Word this morning. There should be an outline there in the uh, uh, folder for you this morning. And just a way of uh, review real quickly, um, we started a couple weeks ago on this uh, series and we, we started off a message from Psalm 1 talking about the subject matter, how to get started right in 2016. And in that uh, message, which you can get online or in the back, um, basically there were, there were three points. And in Psalm 1, uh, the Word of God looks at the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And we looked at how there's only those two ways. Either you're one or the other. You're not in between. Uh, there's no third group. And so uh, we made it very clear that the way of the righteous, uh, ultimately, because they're known by God, they will endure to the end and they will be ultimately saved and be able to be in his presence forevermore. The way of the wicked will not be so. It will uh, ultimately and not in a good way for them if they don't turn their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Christ's work on Calvary for them. Ultimately, they will perish as well. Their ways will perish as well. And they will be uh, subject to an eternal place of torment and punishment under the hand of God's wrath known as hell. That was the first week. (laughs) And you can get that message. The second week, last week, we started... Uh, a message on the biblical principles for effective ministry. And it's a two-part message, and so we're going to finish that off today. But I want us to turn our hearts to God's Word just so we know what we uh, are looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 10. And uh, I want you to look at verse 5, and you can follow along in your Bibles as we read this and uh, ask the word of God, or the Lord to uh, really apply it to our hearts and open our eyes that we could see these truths. So Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 5, it reads, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for a laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter... Find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace be upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, last week, quickly, we looked at the uh, first three points here, but we also broke down an outline for Matthew chapter 10. Real quickly, verses 5 through 15, which we're looking at right now, deals with the basic tasks of ministry. It's kind of ministry 101. And you have to remember, this is where Jesus was sending out his disciples, his apostles, for the very first time on their own. And so this was really a, uh, a test flight for them. He had trained them. He, he taught them several principles and things. And so he's kind of summarizing here. Hey, okay, now right before you go out, I got some last minute instructions for you. 
And so he was sending them out for the very first time. And so verses 5 through 15 deal with the basic task of ministry. And then verses 16 to 23 deal with the reaction that people will have to that ministry. You know, there's always a reaction to ministry, isn't there? Hopefully. It's either good or bad. Either people will reject it or they will be blessed by it. But then in verse 24 to 42, he goes on and he talks about the cost of ministry. And there's always a cost associated with ministry. If there's no cost in ministry, there's probably, it's probably not a very effective ministry. It's probably not a ministry that's going to be blessed by the Lord in any way. And so the apostles were really the original missionaries, you might say, who Jesus sent out for the very first time. And he let them know that, you know what, he was, they were sending out with a message of the gospel, and the, the message was under God's, or the, the, the world was under God's judgment, as it still is today. And the message is a message of hope and forgiveness. And that that message needed to go out to every person, every nation. And that command still stands today. And as is true today, as it was back then, Jesus summarized, he said, you know what, as you go out into the harvest, just understand that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are what? The workers are few. Same, same thing today, same story. And so Jesus gave these instructions to the apostles at the time where they were kind of going out on a, on a short-term mission trip. Some of you were going out on a mission trip this summer and maybe in the fall as we go up to uh, visit in Yakima this summer with uh, Veronica up there. And, and some of you may be going with us over to India. These are short-term mission trips. All right, there's a purpose for them to give us a first-hand account of what's going on in the mission field. It, it, it changes your lives in ways that I can't even explain. And see here, some of these principles, some of these restrictions that Jesus gave his disciples, his apostles as he was sending them out, they were given at a certain time, at a certain place, in a certain situation. But the principles are general. The principles are broad. And we can apply those to ourselves even today. And so he wanted to send them out, first of all, for the sake of the lost, but he also wanted to send them out for their own sake so they could grow, so they could be trained, so they could understand. So the very first uh, principle here was a divine commission. And we looked at this last week, and we see that in verse 5. He says, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them. They heard the call of Christ. These weren't volunteers, beloved. We think that somehow Jesus said, hey, want to go out today? Anybody want to go out? Raise your hand. You know, we'll meet over here in the room for volunteer training. No, that's not how it was. He got his 12 disciples together and he said, by the way, I just want you to understand you are going out. And here's what you're going to be doing. They were like the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.5. The Lord said, Behold, I formed you. Before I formed you, I ordained you. This wasn't an optional trip for them. They were under orders. And he sent them out, Mark tells us, two by two, because he knew that they were going to need the support of each other. They couldn't go out just on their own. It would have been an impossible task for them. And so they could relieve each other and help each other and support each other because he sent them out two by two. And we saw here that this was a direct commission. 
The Lord told them to follow him. It was very clear. They didn't have to, you know, Jesus didn't gather his 12 disciples together and said, okay, I want you guys to pray about something. I want you to go out on a short-term mission. Could you pray about that and come back and tell me next week if you want to go or not? No, he didn't say that. He said, by the way, you know what? I spent some time with you. Now you're going to go. They didn't say, oh, can we go home and pray about this, Jesus? No, (laughs) you can't. There's nothing to pray about. They didn't need to put out a fleece. They didn't need to ask God if he wanted them to go because God himself, Jesus Christ, was standing there amongst them saying, you're going to (laughs) go. See, I believe today, especially in the church, we are praying about things that God never intended us to pray about. Lord, do you want me involved in ministry? Yes. You don't need to pray about that. That's just common sense. Lord, do you want me to go to Bible study? Yes. Lord, do you you want me to do this or do that? A lot of things that that we are praying about, God has already told us in his word. He expects us to do these things. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Is that to become a habit of yours? Neglecting to meet together with brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's he saying? The writer of Hebrews is telling these believers, you know what? You need each other more now than you did last week. And beloved, we need each other more today than we did last Sunday. And we're going to need each other more tomorrow than we do today. This was a direct command by the Lord. Direct commission. They didn't have to pray about it. Now, in our case today, a lot of times people will ask, and rightfully so, well, how do I know if I should be in ministry, in this ministry or that ministry? See, it's not a question of whether you should be ministering. It's a question of where and how. If you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have an option of whether or not to be involved in ministry. That's not an option. Just like it wasn't an option for the disciples to go. He said, no, you're going to go. This is what I trained you for. But how do you know if you're called to a certain ministry or not? And we looked at this last week. First of all, we talked about a strong desire. I think... The Lord gives us a desire to serve in a certain area. There's a lot of areas to serve the body of Christ in. So you follow your desire. You know, if you don't like toddlers and you don't like dirty diapers and you don't like runny noses, the nursery probably isn't the place for you. Okay, but if you're given to that, boy, you just, you love ministering to those folks, then maybe that's where you belong. Okay, if, if you don't, you know, if you couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, you know, maybe, in, in, you know, you, the place for you is not on the worship team. I'm just saying. 
Not that we're up here to perform or anything, but I mean, we, we at least have to have some semblance of order. We have to at least have no something and have some desire as far as music goes. So you have to have a strong desire. Secondly, you have to have a confirmation of the church, of those around you, those you're ministering to. You know, you may be called, you think you're called to teach or you're called to preach or you're called to serve this, or you're called to do that. But other people are going, man, what are they doing in that position? I went to a church one time and the person that was greeting at the door, man, just sourpuss face, man, just frowning like a nasty frown, like you did something wrong when you walked in the door. How are you today? Good to have you here. Here's your photo. Seat's in there. I thought, man, what are these people thinking? Why would they put somebody like that with that personality? He was a nice guy after I got to know him. But you know what? He didn't belong at the door, the first face you see when you walk in. It was kind of scary. So, I mean, you have to be, have some kind of confirmation of your calling. 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Do not neglect, neglect the gift you have. We all have a gift. At least one. Nobody here today can say, oh no, God didn't give me any gifts. I'm just giftless. No. God has gifted you in some way, some form or fashion. And the reason he gifted you is not so you could hold on to that gift and take it home and polish it and look at it and go, well, look at this gift I got. No, he gave you that gift to use, to expend on others. That's the purpose. And so you have a strong desire. You have a confirmation from the church. And then thirdly, we looked at, there's got to be an open door. There's got to be an open door. Sometimes you may have a desire to serve somewhere, and you know what? That ministry is filled up. There's no opportunity to serve there. So what are you called to do then? You're called to go back and you pray, and you say, God, okay, this was my first choice, but maybe right now you don't want me there because there's no opportunity there. Okay? And so you, you be patient with God because God is not only ministering to the people that you'll be serving but he's also ministering to you he's he's molding you he's fashioning you as you're serving and so this was a direct command from christ he not only sent his disciples but he commanded them and we looked at that word and it had the idea of a military command you don't have the option of saying no I talked to my son-in-law one day and I said, what if, you know, what if somebody gives you an order and, and you, know, you, you feel maybe you shouldn't do it? And he said, well, unless it violates some code of conduct, I don't have any choice in the matter. I do exactly what they're told. And I do it when I'm told to do it. Matter of fact, if you don't do that, you get in a lot of trouble. Why? Because there's a chain of command. See? And this is what the Lord is instructing them. He's commanding them. This wasn't a suggestion that they go out. It wasn't a suggestion. Hey, by the way, guys, if you feel like it, you know, tomorrow maybe we can all go out on a little, a little field trip. No. That's not what was going on here. I mean, you have to understand that as a Christian, your commission is from the Lord. It's from the Lord. You're a soldier. He's the commander. You're in his court. He's the judge. You're the student. He's the teacher. You're the patient. He's the doctor. Whatever illustration you want to use, that's the illustration that needs to fit. More than anything else, God wants our obedience, beloved. 
That's what he wants. He wants our obedience. He wants us to obey the command that he's given us. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Woe, it is to me if I do not preach the gospel. Why? Because he was under direct command from God to do so. And you know what? Everyone here today who has trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is under that same commission by the Lord. We're bound to obey his call. We're bound to obey his call to go or as we're going to present him to a lost and dying world. I mean, I I get it. Not every believer is called to be a a, a preacher, in a sense, or a teacher, or a pastor, or a missionary. I understand that. But every believer is called to be Christ's witness to a lost and dying world. There's no excuse. Jesus Christ has no followers who are not under his order in the Great Commission. When Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, when he says, make disciples of all nations. That's each one of us is under that commission. It may flesh its way out in a different way in my life or in your life. But don't think for a moment that, you know, no, no, I'm not under that. I just get to sit here and have fun. No. You're called to minister. I think the first and the most essential element for ministry is really the unqualified understanding that one is sovereignly called, that one is sovereignly gifted and empowered by the Lord to do his work. It's not about us. It's about God working through us. Children of God do not determine their own destiny. They don't get to mark out their own ministries or their own patterns or places where they get to minister. We're under orders from God. And these are divine orders. They're supreme. They're overarching. And we have to be concerned with submitting to Christ in all things. We are servants, beloved, under a divine commission. We've all been commissioned in some sense. Some officially, evangelists, pastors, whatever. But we're all bound to obey Christ's call and to represent him in this lost and dying world. Well, secondly, we looked at the central objective in verses 5 and 6. And Jesus was pretty clear. He didn't tell them, okay, I want you to go out and just kind of do your own thing. (laughs) He didn't say that. He said, no, look at what he says. He says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost house, lost sheep of the house of Israel. What was he saying? Did he have something against the Gentiles? No, we know he didn't because in Matthew chapter 8, he reached out and he approached. He was approached by a centurion whose servant was sick and he went and he healed that servant and it said that, that salvation came to that household. Well, did he have something against the Samaritans? No. But you know what? In, in Jesus' day, Jewish people despised Samaritans, were, were despised by the Samaritans and, and they despised Samaritans. Because the Samaritans were a mixed breed. They were intermarried between Jew and Gentile. They didn't like that. But you know what? One of the first women that Jesus reached out to was the woman at the well. It was a Samaritan woman. Or the good Samaritan. He used him as an illustration in the parable of the good Samaritan. And Israel 
He basically was called, the Bible says, to go to the lost house of the, or the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, why did Jesus give his disciples this, these parameters? Why did he give them this objective? Because he knew who they were. They were Jewish men, simple men. These were fishermen, tax, tax gatherers. These weren't you know, people with a religious establishment in Jesus' day. So who did he send them out to? He sent them out because of their background to people of like kind. He said, you know what? You're Jewish. I want you to go reach your Jewish brothers and sisters for Christ. Why? Because they could relate. Immediately, there was a, there was a relationship there. It wasn't very long if they didn't receive the gospel. But initially, hey, you know, here comes some Jewish brothers. Let's, let's get together. And, you know, and then they would share the gospel message. Some of them accepted it. Some of them rejected it. But he did that because he really wanted them to succeed in ministry. He wanted them to go out and have a successful short-term missionary trip. If he would have said, you know what, I want you guys to go to the Jews or the Samaritans and the Gentiles. They never would have made it. They never would have made it. They would have been in the hole before they even had a relationship. Even started a conversation. Why? Because in their thinking, you want us to go to the Gentiles and the Samaritans? Aren't they unclean? See, they're still dealing with all this religiosity that's in their head. Let alone the Gentiles and the Samaritans had attitudes toward the Jews, so they wouldn't have just freely accepted these folks. But because Jesus wanted them to be successful, he gave them an objective. He gave them parameters. And he said, here's how you're going to do it. See, the worst thing you can do to somebody is when they approach you and say, I want to be involved in ministry. You say, okay, hey, go for it. God bless you. We'll be praying for you, brother. And don't give them any parameters. Don't give them any training. Don't provide anything for them. That's the worst thing you could do. See, there's a process involved in getting involved in ministry. There's a process if you want to teach, if you want to usher, if you want to be on the fellowship team or the greeting team or part of Sunday school. There's a process. You don't get just to show up in our church one Sunday and say, oh, I'm going to teach Sunday school next week. No, you're not. We don't know you. You don't know us. We have to go through a process. We want you to be successful. So if you have a desire to teach young children, you know what? First of all, you're not just going to get thrown down there in a room as I was back when I started youth ministry. I showed up. I had to do an internship. They said, here's the manual. The kids are downstairs. I'm like, okay. I had no idea what I was doing. Brand new believer, only three years in the, old in the Lord. Yeah, I'd been through Bible college, but man, all the stuff's floating around in my head. I mean, it was kind of like hit and miss for the first couple of years trying to figure this thing out. No, we'll take you and we'll have you shadow a class so you at least know, know what goes on in, in Sunday school downstairs. So then you'll sit through a class and you'll say, well, that was interesting. And then, okay, you know, do you still want to help? Yeah, yeah, I'd like to. You know, maybe I can help with the music or maybe I could be a helper first. You'll come alongside the teachers. And then maybe as you're doing that, you'll, you'll be given an opportunity to maybe teach a small segment of the class and people can, the teacher can recognize, wow, this person's gifted in teaching and they have a desire to teach. And you know what? Let's, let's, let's open up an avenue for them to serve in a greater capacity. But that doesn't happen in one Sunday, beloved. That happens over weeks, if not months. And you have to be patient with how God wants to use you. Because we want you to succeed in ministry. Any good commander knows that you have to limit the objectives for what your team is to do. 
And that's why Jesus gave them very specific objectives here. See, it's not a question of whether Jesus wants you to be involved in ministry, beloved. It's only a question of how and where. That's the question you have to leave here this morning with. And I think, you know, I'll just say this, because I was, I was thinking about this this week. I think we have the wrong, a wrong attitude concerning the church today. I think we just have an attitude and a, and a, a belief about the church that is totally foreign to the pages of Scripture, but we've kind of grown comfortable with it. And the attitude is this. I think most Christians view the church, bear with me, as a filling station, as a gas station. Kind of a simple illustration. They come once a week. Why? Well, they got to get their tank full because they got six days <laughs> till the next stop. So they, they come in, top off their tank, prepare for the arduous task of living in this lost and sin-stained world for the next six days until they can come back and fill up their tank once again. You go to church, oh yeah, yeah, go get my tank filled every week. That's not what scripture teaches the church is about. You're not going to find that on the pages of the New Testament. It's just not there. See, it's very, very important that we understand, you know what, I, I, I would hate... For anyone to think that somehow you're looking to me or any other minister to fill up your tank once a week. (laughs) Because I'll tell you right now, it's not going to happen. When we come together on Sundays as believers to worship our God, we should be coming with an attitude of celebration. We should be coming with a worshipful heart. With an attitude of worship, with an attitude that says, you know what? I'm here to to, kind of roll up my sleeves and do something for the Lord. We don't want to drag ourselves through the door on Sunday morning, late, unprepared for worship, looking for some miraculous message or song to lift our spirits and fill our tanks. That's the wrong attitude. Our hearts should be full when you enter those doors on Sunday morning. They should be full when we gather together for worship. Why? Because you've been filling your tank every day. And now you're coming and you're just kind of overflowing. And all week long, you can't wait to gather together with the, with the saints on Sunday morning and share with them how God has worked in your life throughout the week. See, that's what church is about. It's not a filling station. Are you, are you going to get filled? I hope so. But I hope that that's not the only stop that you're going to be making. I think that we need to gather together and share what the Lord has taught us this past week and look forward to how God is going to bless us this next week and how we can minister to his body and to one another. See, that's why we offer a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays. It's not just to have another thing on the calendar. I mean, trust me, I could do other things on Wednesday night. That's not the purpose of, of it. It's not just to say, oh, we have a Wednesday night Bible. No, we really believe that this is a time of equipping. This is a time of fellowship. This is a time when the body of Christ can gather together around his word and be, be taught and, and share and interact together and pray for one another. That's why we offer discipleship. That's why we offer women's Bible studies, men's breakfasts. All those things are around the idea that, you know what? We need to come together as the body of Christ. See, in the New Testament, Sunday was a celebration of the first day of the week 
together as the body of Christ. But you know what? They were also meeting house to house all week long, studying God's word together, fellowshipping, praying, breaking bread, the Bible tells us. Let's not be a church where it's just about Sunday. Let's break out of that mold. Let's be a church where every day we are studying, we're equipping ourselves, we're fellowshipping with others, we're, we're meeting together, we're sharpening each other so that when we do come together on Sundays, it's not a gathering of the weary, war, war-torn, haggard souls that have been beaten up by the lost and sin-stained world in which we live looking for some kind of magic pill to take that's going to get us through the next week. But let's come together ready to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and ready to minister to one another. You know, if we take care of the depth of our ministry, God will take care of the breadth of our ministry. So important we understand that. Well, the third thing we looked at in way of introduction is the clear message. He said there as you go, say this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He declared the message kingdom of heaven in his hand is basically stating that salvation is through Christ. When the kingdom comes, it's going to be through Christ. Jesus taught his disciples that he is the Lord and everyone needs to submit and obey to him. So his message was very clear. And I think today the message of the church is oftentimes confused. And we put a slide up there last week that showed Christ in the middle and, and all those things popping over top of it. And that's what happens. You know, we get off on sidetracks and we get off on this and that. I mean, I think the average unbeliever turns on the Christian television station and looks at it and goes, what in the world are they selling now? I mean, they've lost it. We have to be committed to the message. Our message is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message is the the gospel of Christ. Our, Our focus cannot change from that. I mean, every time we open our mouth somewhere, the kingdom of heaven should pour out. <laughs> That's what should happen. I mean, you look around at this world, you, I don't think we have long before the Lord returns. Who knows? I mean, it could be a thousand years, it could be a day. I don't know. But just the way things are going, you know what? I think it's, it's a lot closer than it was a hundred years ago. <laughs> it's a lot closer than it was yesterday. So we have to be committed to that message. Well, today we look at verse 8. And in verse 8, Jesus tells them some very specific things. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Well, what is this about? This is offering his apostles, his disciples credentials. See, when you preach the truth about Christ, why should people believe you? Who are you? When you think about these men back in In Jesus' time, why should anybody believe these 12 guys who were kind of the bottom of the the society back then, fishermen and and tax gatherers, you know, why should anybody believe what they're saying? Why should they believe that Jesus is from Nazareth is the Messiah? What was their reasoning? Well, it's the same reasoning that when you go to a doctor, you go to a dentist. Or you go to a chiropractor, I trust you go in their office and you kind of look around and hopefully you'll see something on the wall somewhere, a certificate. It's usually framed in a prominent place because they're proud of it. They worked hard for it, as they should be. 
And you may even look at, oh, where'd they go to school at? What is that? That's a credential. That's someone else saying this person is credentialed. This person has clout. This person went through the training. The state is approving this person to work on you. When you hire somebody for your business, same thing. You look at the resume. You don't just go down to the corner and find some homeless guy and say, hey, I'm going to put him on the payroll. No. All right, you want to know his background. You maybe have him fill out an application first. What experience do you have? You want to know his credentials. You know, if you weren't, if it wasn't a big deal, then, you know, you could come over to my garage when your tooth is hurting. You know, and I could put you in a nice, comfortable chair and break out the Dremel, and we'd have lots of fun. I wouldn't know the first thing about drilling your tooth, but I could probably figure it out. I guarantee you it would not be a pleasant experience for you. See, I mean, you wouldn't do that. You'd say, that's crazy, right? So why would anybody believe these simple men who were going out on behalf of Christ? I mean, they didn't go to seminary. They didn't go to Bible college. They didn't have anything to hang on the wall. How would anybody know that they had the right message? They weren't part of the religious establishment back in Jesus' time. None of these men were of the, of the original 12 were Pharisees or Sadducees or part of the Essenes or the Zealots. They had nothing to do with the religious establishment. Even beyond that, beloved, think about it. What they were saying was totally new. Nobody could say, oh, wait, chapter, verse? <laughs> there was no chapter. There was no verse. The New Testament wasn't even compiled yet. It was in the process of being spoken into existence and written into existence. They had to have the right credentials. Well, what are these credentials? Verse 8 says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely you give. Well, he gave them signs. He gave them signs. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul says this, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. You say, well, what are these things? The credentials of the apostle were signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. Mighty deeds were miracles that created wonder. That's basically what they were. And that wonderment pointed these people to God, saying, wow, human beings can't do this stuff. This, there must be some supernatural person involved here. Look over at John chapter 9 with me. And we see this rather clearly here. It's kind of a, a comical part of scripture when you really honestly look at it. John chapter 9. Jesus basically heals this blind man. Verse 1, he says, As he passed by, he saw a blind man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming no one, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground, kind of unconventional, made mud with his saliva, that's just plain gross, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. 
and the saliva and said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seen. That's a miracle. Okay, that's a sign. That's something that creates wonder. It says in verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is that not the man who used to sit and beg? And someone said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how is it your eyes are open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and received my sight. Then he said to him, uh, uh, then, then they said to him, where is he? And he says, I don't know. And then they brought him to the Pharisees. And they went through the whole rigmarole all over again. Well, how did this happen? What, and he told the story. And then you jump all the way down, for time's sake, down to verse uh, 28. It says, and they, they uh, reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Because they kept on asking him the same question. He says, why? Do you want to become his disciple too? <laughs> and they got really ticked off at him, right? And so then he says there in verse uh, uh, 29, he says, they said, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, the blind man who now sees, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where this man comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they got ticked off and said, who are you to teach us? You're lecturing us now, right? I mean, they got their feathers up in a, a ruffle there. But see, the point is this, is that there were certain signs and wonders given that gave them credential. So when they went out and they started healing people, and people said, wow, this is not a normal thing. This is a, a miraculous deal here. Now, it's, it's kind of an a interesting thing when you look at these signs and wonders because, you know, in all honesty, God could have had them do whatever he wanted them to do. I mean, if I stood here and I said, hey, I got a trick for you this morning. Watch this. And I went like this, and all of a sudden I'm standing in the back of the room. And you're all standing there going, where'd he go? And I'm like, hey, I'm back here. And you turn around, and I went, boop, and I'm up on top of the piano. And then I go, boop, and I'm over here by the thing. You would say, whoa, what is going on here? This is weird. This guy's got some weird power. This is not normal. They could have done that. You know, they could have gathered a crowd with doing tricks, and, but they didn't do that. See, these signs and wonders had a specific purpose. Why did he have them perform these certain signs? Well, first of all, it was a display of compassion. Look at what he says in verse 8. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers. See, they just weren't out there doing miracles for miracles' sake. That's not what he was doing. It's not what he wanted them to do. But he wanted them to show compassion. He wanted them to show mercy. He wanted to reveal to them the heart of God. And what's the heart of God say? The heart of God says that God cares for people who hurt. God cares for people who suffer. God cares for the poor, those who are sick. These weren't just miracles for the sake of doing a miracle. Jesus always has had a concern 
for the sick. And it was important to understand that when they did these things, that people related and said, wow, these people are from God. That's why when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus, and they said, hey, how do we know that you're the real deal? How do we know that this Jesus is the real Messiah? John the Baptist was wondering. And this is what Jesus said to him in Matthew 11, verses 4 and 5. Go and show John the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. See, when John heard those words, he knew without a doubt, well, this guy's from God. Because that's what something God would do. Jesus verified as God's Messiah. He was verified because he revealed the compassionate, merciful, gracious, loving heart of God. And you say, well, how does that relate to us? When we go out into a lost and dying world, is that what we're revealing to people? Are we walking out these doors after having our tanks full, out into a lost and sin-stained world with hearts of compassion, hearts of forgiveness, hearts of grace, hearts of love? Are we walking out of here with self-righteousness and judgment and condemnation? Thinking somehow these people out here in the world that don't have Christ, well, they, they just need to get their act together. You know, I, I would never do something like that. My standard of living is here. This is my morality. They're way down there in the gutter. How quickly we forget. That's exactly where we were. That's what we came out of. We need to remember that, beloved. We don't need to compromise. We don't compromise the message to reach folks like that. But you know what? We do have to realize that we cannot expect behavior from unbelievers that is equal to the, be- the behavior of a believer. They're blinded. They're, they're caught in their trespasses and sin, just like we once were. We need to be gracious. We need to be compassionate. We need to reach out, and we need to pray that God would give us wisdom on how to do so. So it was a display of compassion. It was also a display of power. Look at in verse 8. He says, raise the dead, cast out demons. Now we're not going to get into all the semantics of all these things. But I can tell you right now, I don't raise the dead. Just in case you're wondering. Can't do it. Never tried it. Not going to happen. I don't cast out demons. Just don't do it. Not interested in it. Don't really want to go there. See, no one has the power and the authority today our Lord and his apostles had over demons and death. Why? Because it was given to them as a credential. But with that being said, listen, a true representative of Christ will be marked by God's power. False teachers, false apostles... False disciples are powerless. They're impotent. That's why when you read all these scandals, these healing people, you know, always got something in his ear and he's saying that God's telling him, but somebody's whispering in the back room through a mic or through an earpiece what's actually going on. I mean, all that stuff has to go that way because they don't have any power to do what they say they're doing. It's all hocus pocus stuff. And that's a a sad indictment on Christianity when you stop and think about it. But here we have this display of power. Jesus told the leaders of Israel that they didn't know the power of God in Matthew 22, 29. 
They were impotent to change anyone's life. A true representative of God manifests power, not only to raise those who are physically dead in this case, but to redeem those who are spiritually dead through the gospel of Christ. That's what he's called us to. We're called to the ministry of reconciliation. He kind of includes us in that process. That's why we leave this place and we go out into a lost and dying world with the message of hope, with the message of grace, with the message of forgiveness. And so when the apostles went forth, they went out in the power of God. That's what we should do. We don't go out and try to win the lost in our flesh. That would be a miserable experience. Well, not only was it a display of compassion and power, but also unselfishness. Look at what he says at the very end here, verse 8. Freely you have received, freely give. What is he saying? You know what? If you have compassion and you have power in your ministry, where do you get it from? Is this something you conjure up from within you because you're such a good person? The answer is no. It comes from God. It comes because God has graced you with that compassion. He's graced you with that power. You don't get that kind of power by going to Bible study or Bible seminary or Bible college or by being ordained or licensed. or Nothing comes that way. And so what, what Jesus is pointing out to his disciples is you haven't paid anything for this power that you're about to experience. So don't you dare charge someone for it. Don't you dare charge someone for it. A true representative of Jesus Christ will always be modeled by their disinterest in personal gain. Their disinterest in personal gain. They're not in it for themselves. In contrast to the exorcists of Jesus' day, and they did have exorcists, Jewish exorcists, they were common. They couldn't really do anything, but everybody thought they could, so they'd pay them lots of money to come to the house and exercise the demon. Or even doctors back then, they had limited capacity, but you know what? They charged an arm and a leg to come by and help you out. They even had sorcerers. The apostles had the power of God to cast out demons instantaneously. They could heal the sick. They could raise the dead immediately. It wasn't based on that person's faith, as you hear some people today. And so they would go to the sick. They would go to the downtrodden and, 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 and just raise them up by the power of God. Stop and think about it. If you had that kind of power, you could make a lot of money. Think about it. If you had the power to heal people and you could go up to the square hospital, I'd start personally in the children's department. <laughs> and I'd go in there and I'd say, okay, you know, who, who here's got some problems? And I'd go bed to bed. You know what? You're healed. Get up and walk. <laughs> You're healed. Get up and walk. I mean, after a while, people go, wow, this guy's great. He's, he's healing everybody. Pretty soon, nobody be in the hospital. You don't think that you would have a platform to make some big time bucks going around healing people? You betcha you, you would. Like Simon, the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. See, he saw the power that the apostles had, and he said, how do I get this? I'll give you money. I'll give you lots of money. Why was he willing to pay so much? Because he knew that he could make 10 times the amount going around using this power. That's why Peter said to him in Acts 8.20, your money perish with you because you have, you've thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Nothing can buy the Holy Spirit's power. It's a free gift. 
We need to remember that when you hear people on radio, on TV, in the name of Christ, praying on those who are less fortunate, saying, you know what, if you just send in that seed, that somehow God is going to bless you financially as they fly away in their multi-million dollar jet to one of their multi-million dollar vacation homes. Sick, sickening. It really is sickening. And yet people buy into it all the time. We need to be aware that, you know what, this is not what we are called to. And he says here, you know what, these, these credentials are very, very important. And it's the display of unselfishness. That's why we do what we do. We don't, we don't do this for money. We don't do this for personal gain. I know for a fact that for the most part, as far as I've seen, I don't know for a fact, but as far as I've seen, people that minister in this church don't, don't do it because they want to be seen. They don't do it because someone's going to pat them on the back. They do it because God has called them to do it. And a lot of them do it thanklessly. Because they know one day their reward will be in heaven. And that's where it should be. What a glorious thing. Don't ever have the expectation of receiving something from someone when you are ministering the gospel of Christ. It's, it's so important. Because you know what? If you don't expect anything and you don't get anything, then hey, no problem. But it's when you start to expect things from people, then that alters your motivation. Pretty soon you find yourself gravitating to the people that can give you the most and forgetting the people that can't give you anything. That's a serious, serious setback for someone who's called to be a minister of Christ, of which we all are. Well, the fifth thing here is faith in God's provision. He says in verses 9 to 10, Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for a laborer deserves his food. Well, what in the world is he talking about here? I mean, it's kind of logical in a way when you stop and think about it. I mean, one of their credentials were being unselfish. So Jesus tells him, hey, you know, when you're going out there, you know, you, you didn't pay anything for this. So don't you dare charge somebody for this. Well, what's the next question? Okay, well, where are we going to get our stuff, Jesus? <laughs> so that must mean we've got to pack up. We've got to carry a heavy load. So we've got to pack all this stuff up so we're ready to go out and minister. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I don't want you to take anything with you. Why? Because he wanted them to have faith that God would provide for them. Jesus was telling his disciples basically not to take any sustenance, any money, any provisions. They were not to assume that since they weren't going out to charge people, that they weren't going to charge people, that they would need to bring their own support for themselves. He said no. The principle there is in, in, in verse 10, the, the workman is worthy of his food. The NIV says the laborer deserves his food. See, when rabbis ministered to people back in this religious day, they were never to put a price on anything. They were never to demand anything. They were never to ask or have a fee for anything. And the people they ministered to were to supply their needs. 
As a matter of fact, in the Talmud, this is what's written in the Talmud. If a man entertains a rabbi in his house and lets him enjoy his possessions, Scripture accounts it to him as if he had sacrificed the daily burnt offering. So it's a way of sacrifice. God would bless this household because they took care of God's servant. See, when when you're involved in ministry, you don't want to be concerned with all the material things. You really don't. It's a distraction. And so that's why the Bible, the New Testament, calls on the people of God to understand their duty to support those who serve the body of Christ. It's a responsibility of us as a church to support those who serve the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they, those that labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads. In other words, if you want an animal to work, you've got to feed it. See, they who preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, says, should live of the gospel. He's not saying you should live by what he preaches, but rather he's saying that your support should come from your preaching. That's what it says. A faithful worker is worthy of his hire. And God will move through God's people to meet the need. See, if you ever ask for anything, if you ever seek anything and you don't get it, then you're disappointed. But if you never ask for anything and you don't get it, you don't really care. See, there's a healthy kind of a... a, a a faith here that says, you know what? I'm not going to be concerned with material things. I mean, you know, it's, it's a real... When, when we first came to this church, I remember going through the whole interview process, everything. And wasn't really concerned about, didn't even think about really, uh, what rent was here in the Bay Area. I mean, I was living in Indio, California, in a four-bedroom, two-bath, two-and-a-half-bath house with a pool and a jacuzzi. And the, the landlord took care of the pool and the jacuzzi for me. He took care of the, the, the landscaping for me. And I paid $800 a, a month. Well, I moved up here. And I'm thinking, wow, this is my, the first church. This is going to be wonderful, dear. You know, man, they, I never made this much. I think it was $40,000 in youth ministry. Man, we're going to be living high on the hog. You won't have to, you won't have to work, dear. Until I moved up here, I started looking for a place to live. Couldn't find anything cheaper than $2,000 a month. I mean, I'm thinking, whoa, God, what, what's going on here? I should have done my homework. I should have watched out for myself. And God said, no, I'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. And he did. He provided a home on Jefferson. We lived there for $2,000 a month, and they could have very well got probably $4,500 a month. And they were going to sell it after two years, and God provided the house over on Jenner that we live now that someone so graciously donated years before to the church. See, God takes care of his servants. And you know what? It's, it's not just about that, but I want you to understand here today, if you're willing to serve the Lord, if you're called to ministry, and, you're, and we all are, and when you go into that ministry, don't think that God's not going to provide for you. Maybe you don't feel fully equipped. I don't feel fully equipped every Sunday. I don't feel I should be doing what I'm doing here. I'm like, man, I'm, 
you know, compared to some teachers, I'm not kind of the bottom shelf teacher. You know, I just, my mind doesn't, it's not that great that way. But you know what? God provides. And when you're faithful to serve the Lord, he'll provide for you. He'll give you the words you need to say when you're teaching those, those classrooms downstairs or you're helping out in the fellowship time or in the nursery or the greeter or the usher, whatever you want to serve. He'll give you the ability to do that because see, it doesn't come from ourselves. God will provide that for us. Well, the sixth thing here is an attitude of contentment. So we have a faith that God is going to provide for us, and that's very important. But sixthly, an attitude of contentment. Look at what he says in verse 11, and we're going to go through this quickly. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy. Find out who is worthy. Now remember, these guys are traveling around the countryside. They're going into different towns, different places. They need a place to stay. They don't have anything with them. They have no, no money, nothing. They can't buy anything. And so, basically, if you were to go to a, a, a town and you don't have any real credentials yet, I mean, you have some miracles that probably are going to take place, but for the most part, you end up, and you end up in, in somebody's home who is, is not a believer or someone who is really just unregenerate and vile and wicked and, and people in the society look down on that, that family and you're staying with them. How would that look when you went out and shared the message of Christ? They would say, Wait a minute, it's not the guy that's staying at the house. We know what goes on in that house. Why are we going to listen to you? So he says, no, when you, when you go out, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who is worthy. Find the right place to stay. Jesus instructed his disciples to find a worthy place, someone who's a representative of Jesus Christ. That's what they would do. And then he says there, Abide with them, in verse B, uh, 11b there, he says, abide with them and stay there until you depart. They were to stay with the worthy people, the people that, that, that were pointed out to them, and they were to stay there the entire time. They weren't to shop around. If God led them through a certain house, and those people were worthy, and they checked into that house, and then they had a gathering, and somebody else said, you know, hey, are, are you staying here? Yeah, well, this is kind of a humble place. You know, I have a great place over here around the corner. It's, it's a lot bigger rooms. Boy, you, you have a... And, and Jesus said, no, you don't be concerned about that. You go exactly where, start your ministry right where I tell you to. And, and don't be looking for some kind of personal gain. Be content. Well, the seventh thing here, he says, emphasize those who are receptive in verses 12 and 13. He says, as you enter that house, greet it. Or bless it is the idea. You know, back then they would say shalom. That's kind of a blessing. And if that house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. So if you go to a house and they're receptive to the message of Christ, maybe they're Christians, whatever, then great. Hey, bless that house. But if you get into a house who is not receptive, then don't have anything to do with it. And that's what he says here. Find those who are receptive. Find the open hearts. Find the people that are receptive to the gospel of Christ. Find the hungry hearts. You know, who do we preach to? I mean, a lot of times in the modern day church, people say, well, the church should be all about reaching out to those who are not committed to Christ. Go to the bottom of the barrel. Teach those who are uncommitted. 
I don't agree with that. I don't want to waste my time teaching people who are not committed. I mean, give me the committed people. See, I'm mandated, mandated to preach the gospel to those who want to learn the most. See, it's not my business to convince you you need to learn. That's God's business. But I want to feed that hungry heart, that hungry soul. I don't want to be in the business of trying to convince the uncommitted that they need to be committed. That's just kind of a silly, silly business to be in. I want to concentrate on feeding people who are willing to receive God's word because they're really the the way that the world will change. Now, does that mean we just cast off the uncommitted and the unbelievers? No, that's why we go out to them and we try to convince them. But this leads us to the next point here. Verse 8, depart from those who are contemptuous. Look at what he says. He said, if this house is worthy, let your peace be upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Say you end up in a house. Disciples, the apostles are going out and, and they kind of welcome you. And you get in there and you, they, they start complaining about the message that you're preaching. They start, you know, kind of disgruntled. Right? We don't believe in this Jesus stuff. What are you doing? You know, he says here, if they don't receive it, then you know what? Take your blessing back. <laughs> That's what he says. Don't you dare bless somebody who doesn't deserve it. Remove the blessing just like you pronounced the blessing. Withdraw that favor. In 2 John chapter verses Second uh, John one, one chapter verses ten and eleven, it says this: If there comes someone to you who brings erroneous doctrine regarding Christ, Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that bids him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. What's this saying? It says, don't pronounce benedictions or blessings on people who are attempting to undermine God's truth. And because we live in such a tolerant society today, everybody wants to be loved and everything, that when you, you take a firm stand on God's truth and say, no, this is wrong, this is right, people can't, they just, their, their mind goes nuts. Oh, that's not loving. Yes, it is. It's pointing out error. There's nothing wrong with that. We don't just throw away, throw around God's blessing indiscriminately. And we don't want people under the illusion that somehow they're under God's blessing when maybe they're not. And that's why he says, you know what? Eventually, if they don't listen to you, Say you get into a house and you're trying to win them for Christ and you thought they were Christians or not and you're trying to win them for Christ and eventually it just ends up in a big fight and they're, they're just, they won't have anything to do with you. What's he say? Does he say sit there and try to convince them? No. He says if anyone is not, verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? Our message is a message of reconciliation. Our message is a message that Christ will save, that Christ can save, that Christ has saved me, and that we're all sinners, and we all need to come to repentance. We all need to come to the Savior. But you know what? If people hear that, and in the end, and this isn't immediate, it's not like you just give the gospel to them once and say, okay, that's it. You know, I'm dusting my hands. No. I mean, there's a process here. So you're trying to convince them of Christ and ultimately you realize, you know what, they're, they're just, phew. eventually, there comes a point in time, the Bible says, where you say, okay, you know what, this is, I'm not going to spend my time here anymore. 
You shake the dust off your feet and you move on. Back in Jesus' time when they would travel, it was very dusty, it was sandy, a lot of fine grit sand going on. So when you would come into somebody's house, you know, you would usually take your shoes off and, and, and that kind of thing because you wouldn't want to get this dust and this dirt throughout the whole house. Well, when the Jewish people had to, on occasion, travel through a Gentile country that was, in their mind, the religious mind, considered unclean, what would they do? They would travel through, and as soon as they got back on, right before they would enter into Israel, they would shake the dust off. They don't want to, they don't want to pollute their, quote, holy land in their minds. And it's the same concept. And so what he's telling them, listen to the irony of this. They're not even going to Gentiles at this point. Remember, they're going to who? Jews. And so he's saying, when you go to these Jewish brothers and sisters, if they do not receive the message of Christ, what are you to do? You do the same thing. You treat them like a Gentile. You treat them like a Samaritan. You dust. You shake the dust off your feet and you move on. See, that's why 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, we beg you in Christ's stead to be reconciled to God. But see, when the pleading is over and the clear testimony of Scripture is rejected, you have to move on. You have to turn your attention to others. And in verse 15 here, we'll close with this. Truly I say to you, it is more, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What was he saying? When you're exposed to the gospel and you willfully reject it time and time and time again, you don't want to be that person and enter eternity. Because you know what? It, there, there comes a point in time where you know what, you've heard all the truth you need to hear, frankly. And you need to commit your life to Christ. You don't need to wait for a rainbow. You don't need to wait for a bright light in the sky. You don't need to wait until you feel like it. You need to basically take the facts that you've been given and conclude, you know what, yes, this seems right. Everything around me is saying this is right. And you ask God for the grace to repent of your sin and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior. See, these are all principles for effective ministry. This is what we want to be about. We don't want to just go off, you know, doing our own thing, trying to figure out, you know, it's all about numbers. No, it's not. It's about effectively ministering the gospel to the hearts of God's people and also to the lost. And we all, are called to minister to some degree or fashion. And so I would pray this morning as we close in prayer, just bow your heads with me. If God were to look at the standards in your own life, would you be considered a a faithful disciple, a faithful apostle, someone who's a faithful minister with what he's given you? I mean, please know the the world would have never picked these 12 guys to be Jesus' disciples. But God made them who they were. And he gave them principles that they needed to complete their mission. And look at how effective they were. This ragtag band of fishermen and tax gatherers. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for them. And you know what? God has a ministry for you. 
He's gifted you. He's equipped you. And he calls you to serve the body of Christ. I pray that 2016, that you would understand that gifting in a more fuller sense and that you'd begin to use your gifts and your talents and your resources here in this body to reach out to this lost and dying world in which we live. God knows that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Father, we pray this morning that if there's any here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that you would do that miraculous work of salvation even now, that they would surrender their heart to Christ, that you would transform them, that you would assure them that their sins can be forgiven through Christ. They don't need to work. They don't need to toil. They don't need to tire. They just simply need to trust. Trust in the gospel and the good news of Christ. And Lord, for us, that they would just, they, they would just, they would just cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me your ways. And for us believers here this morning, I pray that we would never lose sight of the fact that you've gathered us here together, not just to have church on Sunday. That's not the purpose of our ministry. But it's to come together and to build one another up to become a more effective minister for Christ out in this lost and dying world. And Lord, I pray that we would view each day as a day that we can fill up with your spirit, with your word, that you will make us effective ministers for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.